studies on Sunday nights are just going to be focused around uh, this worthy walk, the idea of a Christian's worthy walk. Um, I kind of I kind of planned out the Sunday nights from now until Christmas, and hopefully, if we take each section and we don't and we don't get bogged down too much, we should finish by Christmas. Um, the doctrine has been placed before us in Ephesians one to three, and and so now the implications of that teaching are laid before us in chapters four to six. And last week I said that the imperatives. Uh, imperatives are always rooted in indicatives. And I want to make sure you understand what we mean by that. Everyone understands what an imperative is, right? Yeah, a command. It's, it's, a, it's a command. A, an imperative is something that you are obligated to do. An indicative is just a statement of truth or a statement of fact. So we say when, when God gives us imperatives or commands or, or requirements, they are always based on something, some truth or something that he has done. And in Ephesians, there are 41 imperatives. Okay, so there are 41 requirements. That'd be a fun study for you to try to find all those. But get this, 40 of them are in chapters 4 to 6. There's only one in chapters 1 to 3, and it's in Ephesians 2.11 when it tells us to remember uh, that, we, that Gentiles, etc., etc. But 40 of the 41 imperatives come in the chapters we're going to study. And if we just quickly glance at it, okay, there's 32 verses in chapter 4. Let's do the math. There's 33 verses in chapter 5, so that's 66. And then add 24 more, that's 80. There are 40 imperatives in 80 verses. So approximately one every two verses, we have another command here in Ephesians to tell us how to walk in a worthy way. The question that Paul is going to answer in these four chapters is, how does what God has what God has done for me in chapters 1 to 3, how does that, what implications does that have for my life? Um, how do I walk in a way that's worthy? I once, according to Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, walked in a worldly way. Remember, I walked according to my, my sins and my trespasses, Ephesians 2, uh, verse 2. You used to walk according to that. And now he has, uh, verse two, uh, chapter 2, verse 10, said he has created us for good works, which we should walk in. And so in verse uh, 1 of chapter 4, we are now told to walk worthy. Um, so every Sunday night is going to be so practical and so, uh, in other words, every Sunday night when we leave, there's going to be some new requirement that we've been reminded of, some new uh, obligation that we have to fulfill. So each week we should be evaluating ourselves, say, how am I doing in this imperative? And there'll probably be a few uh, each week. So let's look at chapter 4, 1 to 6. I hope to do uh, verses 1, 2, and 3 tonight. We're just going to look very clearly at what this means, and I want to point out something that I discovered that was very interesting. Let's go ahead and read it first, okay? Uh, 4, uh, 1 to 6. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. We already talked about what that meant last week. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's above all and through all and in you all. Okay, so Paul starts off by, by saying, based on all that I've said, now I'm going to encourage you to walk worthy. But Paul is where? This is just a short aside. Paul is where? Jail. This is where the worthy walk gets you. Right? What would the prosperity preachers say to Paul? You know, 
you know how you ever turn those on? You told me you flip through sometimes, and I've seen some of those guys, and it's just great on you to watch them. And you've heard them say these words, God doesn't want you poor. God doesn't want you unhealthy. I mean, do we say to Derek, who's struggling with cancer, or any, or, or any of us who go through any sort of physical problem, that that's because we don't have enough faith, or, or God is somehow frowning on us? Can you imagine? Paul, prosperity preachers, what do they do with this verse? Did Paul screw it up? The worthy walk puts you at odds with the world. This is just the way to start our lesson tonight. When you walk in a way that is worthy, and notice he says, walk worthy of the, uh, of the calling with which you were called. We're not, we're not to walk in a way where the world acknowledges us, accepts us, approves us, applauds us. In fact, they're going to persecute us, hate us, as in Paul's sake, uh, in Paul's condition, Im- imprison us. The worthy walk gets you to this point. Notice what we did each Sunday morning with the 11 disciples. Where do each of them end up? The wrong end of a spear or hanging on a cross. Did they mess up? But this is, this is how the world responds to those who walk worthy. Simply turn on uh, any sort of, uh, well, you, ha- you kind of have to go back to the old Larry King shows when they'd have MacArthur on and three other guys and they just mock the Christian viewpoint. And they mock the Christian viewpoint on, on the, the daytime talk shows. They mock the Christian viewpoint everywhere. Um, and so the blessings that come from being a believer are not tradable, but, but we have to understand that sometimes this is the position that we'll be put in when we attempt to walk worthy. Now, how this breaks down, chapters 4 to 6, I want to show you something really interesting. And if you write in your Bibles, you might do this. There's, there's basically six sections in chapters 4 to 6, and they all are, are marked by words and phrases. Sometimes uh, we get into the, into the mindset of seeing chapter and verse numbers, and that's how we divide up how the Bible is written. Um, but sometimes that can be a problem. You know those were added later. Those chapter and verse things, you know, Paul didn't write, this is verse 1. Other people did that later, so we could easily find uh, a verse. But I want to show you how it breaks down, okay? So, so five major sections and then a sixth kind of follow-up section. Let, let me show you what they are. Section number one goes from verse 1 to 16. And all of these sections are introduced by two words, therefore and walk. Therefore and walk. So the first section is introduced in verse 1 when it says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy. Verses 1 to 16 Here's, the, here's the, the title of it, Walk in Unity. Okay, verses 1 to 16 of chapter 4 is Walk in Unity because the whole section is dealing with that. Look at verse number 3. Endeavor to keep the unity uh, of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Look at verse number um, uh, 13. Till we all come to unity of the faith. It's talking about using our spiritual gifts, how we react with other people, how the church grows and edifies itself. So that whole section is walking in unity. And then in verse 17, we see our key words again. You see in verse 17, you see, therefore, don't walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. So section number two is, and it goes from verse 17 to verse 32, that is walking in holiness. I, I, I don't mean to go fast because I know many of you are writing these down, but the first section goes from verse 1 to 16, uh, walk in unity. 
And then the second section goes from 17 to 32, walk in holiness. It's in this section that he contrasts the new man and the old man. He says, put on the new man, but put off the old man. Don't lie, don't steal, don't curse, don't let corrupt communication come out of your mouth, don't be angry and sin, put away bitterness, wrath. All these things that contribute to unholiness, put them away. Okay. Then, Ephesians 5, 1 to 5, 7 you see the therefores and walk again. In verse 1, you see, therefore, be imitators of God and walk in love. So section 3 is walking in love. Uh, verse 8, actually verse 7 is the therefore. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Walk as children of light. Chapter 5, verse 9 to 14 is walking in light. And we'll discuss that when we come to that. And then in verse 15... Uh, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, as is wise. The therefore actually comes in verse 14, and that section goes all the way to chapter 6, verse 9, and that's walk in wisdom. Okay? The five sections, verses 1 to 16 of chapter 4, walk in unity. Verses 17 to 32 of chapter 4, walk in holiness. Chapter 5, 1 to 7, walk in love. Chapter 5, 9 to 14, walk in light. Chapter 5, 15 to 6, 9, walk in wisdom. Then in chapter 6, verse 10, we have this very famous section that deals with what? Spiritual warfare. Okay? When you walk in unity, holiness, love, light, and wisdom, what's going to happen? Spiritual attack. Okay? And so he spends the last part of the book telling us how to deal with that. Here's how you prevent, or uh, here's how you prepare and stand during spiritual warfare against spiritual forces that are going to challenge you in each of these areas. You put on your helmet, and we'll talk about all that, but you guard yourself against that. Because when you start walking in these different ways, Satan and all of his forces are going to rise up against you, and you need to be prepared for that. That's how chapters 4 to 6 break down. We're going to be tonight, and for the next couple of weeks, maybe two weeks on each of these five sections. Tonight, though, we're talking about walking in unity. And if the, if the uh, schedule works out, we'll, we'll wrap it all up right before Christmas. Here's three opening thoughts, then, on walking in unity and on these verses we just read. Three opening thoughts. Number one, introductory thought number one. Christians have individual and corporate responsibilities, okay? Christians have individual and corporate responsibilities. Your Christian life is not just between you and God. We, se we, te we tend to sometimes focus simply on the individual responsibilities. But if you look back at chapter 2 and 3, or you just think back to what we talked about, it's about Christ making of two, or making two into one. Let's look back at where he did that. Uh, chapter 2, verse 14. He himself is our peace who has made both one. What is he talking about there? Who are the both that he's talking about? Yeah, Jew and Gentile are brought together as one. That sounds a lot like unity. And the middle wall is gone. Christ has formed one body from Jew and Gentile, and we call that one body the church. And that church is designed to have unity, and spiritual growth 
is, is shared with the body. In fact, if you look ahead to chapter 4, verses 7 to 16, which we'll get to, it talks all about these spiritual gifts that he gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, pastors, to, to equip the church to use their gifts and do the work of the ministry. That's what it says in verse 12. In other words, pastors and teachers are God's gift to the church to equip the church to use their gifts in the church. And the purpose of that is so that everyone comes to growth and unity of the faith, built up, verse 13, into the measure of the fullness of Christ, not carried around, verse 14, by every wind of doctrine. Okay? So you have responsibilities. You cannot live in a worthy way unless you're fulfilling your corporate responsibilities to each other. Look to the person next to you. Look to the person behind you. You have responsibilities to that person. You understand that? You have responsibilities to that person. And I would say that people that aren't, um, shall we say, uh, faithful to those responsibilities aren't walking in a worthy way. You know, you have responsibilities to you. You have responsibilities to him. We, we have responsibilities to each other. To, I mean, think of the one another's that you're obligated to fulfill, whether it's love, serve, pray, bear each other's burdens, etc. Um, so, so you cannot live properly if you're not fulfilling your corporate responsibilities. And it's interesting that this is what Paul starts with, walking in unity. Second introductory thought. This is important, too. It's just introductory thought. Unity is created by Jesus. Unity is created by Jesus. If you ever hear somebody say, and I know sometimes people just use words wrong, and I may say this once, but this is, this is the wrong way to say it. Hey, we've got to really work for unity. No, you don't, because it already exists. You know what you have to do? Work to keep it or work to protect it. But Christ has created it. It happened in this mystery that Paul talks about in chapter 3 when Jew and Gentile came together. In fact, this is a great way to, to say it. We don't work to attain unity, we work to maintain unity. Unity is a gift that God has given us that can easily be wrecked. You know, we, we don't work to make unity happen, but a lot of times what we do is destroy it by our actions. Um, one of the blessings of the cross is the unity that Christ has provided. We've talked about this over and over, how Allie goes to Cuba and immediately has a a bond with believers that she's never met and will never see again. That's the unity that God has created. It's why somebody like you can walk in, or all of us who at one point came into the church, and, and there's an instantaneous fellowship, right? An instantaneous bond, but that can be easily destroyed. So our job is to not create unity, but to just protect and guard it. Look at chapter 4, verse 3. Uh, it says to endeavor to keep, right? Not to make it, endeavor to keep. The word endeavor means to earnestly desire or work for. In fact, if you have a different translation, I'd be curious to know what it says. I looked at a couple, like the ESV, I think it might say make every effort. Is that right? Or an NIV, what, what are you guys carrying? What does it say in verse three? Not endeavor, but what does it say? Okay, eager to maintain it, make every effort. That's it. There's a, there's a work that goes involved. One of, the, one of the worst translated verses in the King James is 2 Timothy 2.15. Uh, it says, study to show thyself approved unto God. It's the Iwana verse, study to show thyself approved unto God. But the word study there does not mean, like, you know, we think of study as looking at a book and 
That's not what it means. It's the same word here. It's make every effort. So 2 Timothy 2.15 is, is not a verse that is encouraging us to study God's word. Study to show thyself approved unto God. Make every effort to be pleasing to God. That's the thrust of that verse. And it's the same word here. Basically means spare no effort. Give your all. Work real hard. Endeavor. To keep. That is the word for a warden or a guard. Basically what he's saying in chapter 4, verse 3 is don't destroy something that God has already given you. God has given the church unity Men can destroy it. Men and women can destroy it very easily. The barriers are torn down. God has given us peace with him and peace with each other, and it can very easily be wrecked. Something that we don't see in our English translation, you might write this in your Bible. I, I think this is a very creative way that the Spirit gave these words to Paul. If you were to circle the word prisoner and circle the word bond in verse 3 and draw an arrow to those two words, those words are the same have the same root Greek word, deo, D-E-O, which means to bind. Isn't that interesting? It, it's not the same exact Greek word, but same root word. So what Paul is really saying, he, he's making a connection between his bondage in prison and the bond that is created by Christ and Christians must endeavor to keep. He's saying, church in Ephesus, make every effort to imprison peace, to imprison unity. Don't let, it, don't let it get away, just like I am imprisoned. Isn't that a neat connection? And the, and the people hearing that would hear the words, and they'd say, oh, Paul's in prison. We have to imprison unity. And that's the goal of every believer here, to strive to work, to spare no effort, to keep the unity, to guard it. It's interesting that that word bond is also used in Colossians 2.19 of the ligaments of the body that bind muscles together. The unity of the spirit, it says, right, in verse 4 to 3. What I think that means is the unity that the spirit has wrought through Christ, and if that is the case, it should be evident. To live against unity or to cause disunity or to sow discord amongst the brothers is to say that what Christ has accomplished has no significance in our lives. Okay? Third, introductory thought. These are all still introducing here. Okay? Um, we have corporate responsibilities, not just individual responsibilities. Uh, unity is being created by Christ. Third, if we have been challenged to preserve unity, what does that imply? If we've been challenged to keep it, right? Verse 3 tells us, work hard, spare no effort to protect the unity, if we're challenged to keep it, what does it imply? That we're losing it? Okay, yet yeah, that there's a threat. There's a threat to it. Okay? What are those threats? We don't have to wonder. Paul lists them for us. But give us one. What, what are some of the threats to unity? Without looking at verses 1 to 3. Okay. Yes, it, like I mentioned, you can sow discord in a lot of different ways. Hey, Tony's not a very good magician. Right? You, know, you can say these types of things to discourage and disc <laughs> right? Any any other? Wh what are some other threats to unity in the church? That all we can look at the scripture. That's fine. But okay, let's look at it. Let's let's see what he says. So here's what it means to walk in unity. There's four imperatives. Okay, so we're gonna come. I'm not gonna count all these up to forty, but there's four here in the list. 
I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Let's list the four right now. Okay? Imperative number one, walk. Okay? With all, lo- with all lowliness or humility. Second, with all gentleness. Anybody else got their Bibles open? Number three, with long-suffering or patience. And number four, bearing with one another in love. That's it. There's your outline. Let's talk about each one. Okay? Start with lowliness. These, these are things, and, and what I would say is, Paul's giving us the positive, and so the opposite would be the threat. The opposite would be the threat. We are encouraged amongst each other, and this is your obligation. If I had you look at each other again, your obligation is to walk, is to interact with one another with lowliness, with each other, okay? This is not, you are not walking this way before God. You're walking this, well, in a sense you are, but it's your responsibility to each other. As you mentioned, other versions use the term humility. But the word really means to esteem ourselves small, as in fact we are, or to have the correct estimate of ourselves, which involves the confession and recognition of our sins and the, and the realization that we are unworthy to receive God's marvelous grace. That's what loneliness is, is to see ourselves as God sees us and recognize that we are unworthy of what he has done for us so how am I going to look down or be arrogant with others? Here's some verses, uh, I'll just go through them quickly, that connect humility and unity. So if we, are to, if we are to walk with lowliness, what's the threat to unity? If we're to walk with humility, what's the threat to unity? Pride. Pride or arrogance is the threat. If you are a proud person, Looking down upon others, you are a threat to the unity that we are commanded to keep. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus tells us he is the example of this. I am gentle and lowly, he says. Matthew twenty three twelve tells us the humble will be exalted. Paul in Acts twenty announces to the people of Ephesus that he served with all humility. Um, Colossians three twelve tells us it's part of the character of the new man. In fact, Colossians 2, verses 18 to 23 tell us it's possible to fake this. Don't put on false humility. The greatest place, I guess, that it would be mentioned is in Philippians chapter 2, where it tells us, in lowliness of mind, consider one another's better than yourselves. And the example is Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself of no reputation. He humbled himself. God, according to James 4, 6, gives grace to the humble. Uh, we are exhorted in 1 Peter 5, verses 5 to 6, to be clothed with humility. When Paul talks about walking in, the sp- in unity, the first thing he mentions is walk in lowliness. What does that imply to you? If it's the first thing, maybe it's the greatest threat, most important. This is the first thing he mentions in the section about endeavoring to keep the unity and the bond of peace. This is a word, this word lowliness. I think it's the word tapanos in the Greek. It, it didn't even exist before the New Testament times. And then it was used negatively of people. I guess there was a Roman emperor named Galba who when he ascended to power, it was typical when a new emperor ascended to power that he would uh, provide bonus payments to his royal guard. And he didn't do that. 
and people started calling him this word. Said he's a he's tapping us. It, it was like a dig. It, 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 it then eventually became known as someone who has a non-noble spirit. But then Christians took that very word, and Christ, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, took that very word and, and used it as a virtue for people. But others would look down upon people like this, saying it was a weakness. Luke 18, verse 14. Let's turn to that verse real quick. I mentioned a lot. This is one worth turning to. Luke 18, verse 14. Go ahead. First thing, first thing. And I think when we see those first in the list, yeah, <coughs> there are a few things more hate, hated by the Lord than pride. Excuse me just for a second. <coughs> Sorry. So, uh, Isaiah 66, 2, Proverbs 11, 2, Isaiah 2, 11, all these verses. Look at 18, 14 of Luke. This is just the end of the story. This is of the, of the two people at the temple, one a tax collector beating his chest saying, oh, I'm a wicked sinner. The Pharisee saying, uh, I'm glad I'm not like that wicked sinner. And then the, the culmination of the story is in verse 14. I tell you, this man went to his home justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee did which one? Exalted himself. And what does the story tell us is the way that he exalted himself? What's that? Comparative. I'm better than that. And he didn't, yeah, he, he looked at this person as a sinner, but as himself as not. And so the connection to lowliness is this. Lowly people see and recognize their sin. Pride peop proud people don't. And so then the sins of others really grate on them because they don't recognize their own. So in our interactions with one another, the greatest way to stay lowly is to constantly recognize our own sinfulness and say, wow, we, we need to be the people beating our chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and that's going to change the way we look at other people. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And isn't it funny that when you live this way, they imprison you? You know, in Paul's case, or they look down upon you. That person's a loser. That person probably drives with a donut as a spare tire. Private joke. <laughs> so let's not have an exalted view of ourselves. That's step number one. Walk with lowliness. Second, go back to the list of Ephesians. We're already hitting close to six, so let's move it here. Uh, Ephesians 4 again. With all lowliness and all gentleness. I would say that the word all in verse 2 actually describes both uh, lowliness and gentleness. In other words, we are to be fully humble. We are to be fully Gentile, a total commitment to these characteristics. Now, this is a fantastic word, gentleness. It's, of course, a fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.23. It's a virtue that, according to 1 Peter 3.4, is precious to God. But I was not prepared uh, in the study to figure out what this word meant. What would you say is the threat to unity if we're commanded to, uh, and I'm not, I'm not sure that anyone will get the answer right, maybe you will, what would you say is the threat to unity if, if we're commanded to walk with all gentleness? Okay, 
That's real close. A, a quick reaction. Anyone else want to take a stab? Rough or harsh? Okay. Okay, yeah, being harsh with others who have differing views, sure. And again, keep in mind, this is, this is the interaction of the church. That's a great statement, but it's the interaction of the church. Listen, this is fantastic. In the ancient world, this was the word that meant you had a balance between two extremes. If you were gentle, you were balanced. And here's the balance. Excessive anger against everyone on all occasions for every reason absolutely angry at nothing. So the threat then to the church would be misused or misplaced anger. Anger is the threat. A famous theologian years and years ago said this about this word. It means you are always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. There is a time to be angry, but a lot of times believers become very angry, harsh, rough with others based on their imperfections and flaws instead of being gentle with them. The word was also used of a well-trained animal. Uh, we don't have a well-trained animal at home. If you were to come to our house tonight, you'd be barked at and stuff, but we're working at that. The ultimate goal of training Maisie should be what in regards to people visiting our home? She should, how should she react? If this is the word, how should she react? There is a place for her to be angry. There is a place for her to be rough. When someone knocks on our door at 3 in the morning, I want her to be harsh, right? But, but once we have people who are, that's, the, that's a great, and that was in a theological word study guide as well, that's a great thing for believers. It, believers aren't just people who are mush-push, uh, everything goes type of thing and never stand up against anyone. In fact, this word is used in Galatians 6.1 and it tells us a characteristic of this is how you should react when restoring a fallen brother with gentleness. And it also tells us we should be this way in 2 Timothy 2.25 when correcting someone who is in error. Okay? There is a right time and a right place to be angry. And again, anger is never uncontrolled rage. Um, but can you imagine how many situations and circumstances that you've encountered with other believers where you have an excuse to be angry? This word tells us to make a conscious choice to, to exercise gentleness and be kind and gracious. Third, and we're, we'll go, we're trying to move a little faster. So with all lowliness, with all gentleness, these things help preserve unity. Then it's with long-suffering with long-suffering. This word means self-restraint before we proceed to action. It's a word that's used to bear up under provocation. Um, I, I, I love this little word study book I have because it tells us, it tells me that in places in old Greek uh, literature where this word was used too, and it gives us more of an indication how the Holy Spirit then takes this word and puts it in the Bible for us, 
it, it's used often of a person who endures grief. They, they hold up under it. But it's used of a person, in, I guess this would be in, in an old Greek uh, text somewhere, where a city was sieged. In other words, there, there was a, a, a war on and the city was sieged and someone planted turnips and then had the endurance to expect that they would one day eat of that very crop patient enough to see the future and recognize that I will endure this tough situation knowing that eventually there will be fruit. That's an awesome word. And that's the reaction with people. Sometimes we become so impatient with others that, that the word to be long-suffering with them is to, is to in a sense, uh, be known for this spirit uh, of people who maybe annoy us or put us off. Um, and, and they are... They are in need of this patience. Here's a big secret. None of us are perfect. And there's people who are putting up with us in here tonight, right? There's people who are putting up with you. There are people who are putting up with me. And so the, the, the goal of unity is to put up with each other, to, to patiently uh, not just write them off or to give up. Um, you've heard the statement, if you join the perfect church, you'll wreck it, right? Well, you hear of a perfect church, don't join it because you'll wreck it. Be patient with one another. And it ties in with the fourth thing. We can wrap this up. It ties in with the fourth thing. Bear with. Very similar to long-suffering. Bear with one another. That's a word to me that means tolerate the differences. Matthew 17, 17, Jesus says to his uh, ignorant disciples, how long do I have to put up with you? It means to endure in the midst of tension, uh, conflict, and difficulties. Okay? Note that this long-suffering, this patience, this endurance, this bearing with each other isn't just this gritting our teeth and putting up with someone who is annoying. Uh, there are annoying students in Bible class at school. I mean, there are just these annoying kids. I hope they don't listen to the sermons online. They probably know who I'm talking I mean, you know what I mean? It, it's like there is just something about them. It's like just, you just want to get away. But that's... That's why Paul puts this qualifier on it for us when we preserve unity. We exercise love. It's not just keeping our mouth shut and putting up with the people that we don't like. It's actually bearing with them in love, hoping for the, the best in them, desire for the will of God to be met in their lives. There are people in our church who, different ones for different ones of us, anytime people come together, this is true, that will have grating personalities, annoying quirks, faults, failures, weaknesses, yet Christ has endured those in us, and so the people who are lowly, gentle, long-suffering, patient are actually exercising the characteristics of Christ. And I think that's a great thing to remember. In the face of these threats, pride, anger, impatience, exalting of self, we look at others as better than ourselves and put up them with them in love. That is how we walk worthy. Now, one quick thing before we finish. It's already after six, so let's finish. Unity, and this is what we'll talk about next time. Unity is not just uh, kind of this all-in accepting one another no matter what. Because you go on to verses four and six, unity is based on truth. Unity is based on the Trinity. We have this one body, one, there's this unity, but, but it doesn't just mean we accept everything um, without... Uh, without this unity. Unity is only provided by the faith that we all have in the Son of God and in God's Word. 
And so it doesn't mean, well, I accept this person, I accept that person, and, and let's all just be inclusive and united. And that's, that's not true either. And so we'll talk about that next time. The basis for our unity is really the unity of the Trinity, the unity of our faith, the unity of our doctrine. But, but this is a great evaluation. I said every Sunday night until Christmas will evaluate yourself, and some of these get me. Some of these really get me, right? Gentle, patient, bearing with, lowly. That's going to preserve unity. God has given us that as a gift. Let's work to protect it. Okay? Let's pray.